Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to two places, would you? First Peter chapter 5 is where we'll start, and then we'll land in Acts chapter 7 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Cut to the Heart. And we'll finish chapter 7 today uh, in the book of Acts. We're studying through verse by verse, uh, learning about God's heart for his church, how he built it, created it, and it continues today. And we left off in our last study with Stephen standing before the religious rulers of the day. They've accused him of blasphemy. And they've accused him by hiring false witnesses and lying about him. And he's standing before what is known as the religious Supreme Court of the day. You may have heard it referred to as the Sanhedrin. And this is a group of people that were used uh, and made the choice themselves to crucify Jesus. And they thought they had dealt a death blow to the ministry of Jesus. But now they're dealing with the church, the extension of Jesus on the earth. And they see the faithfulness in Stephen, and bring great accusations against him. Now, one way we've looked at chapter 7 is looking at Stephen. Stephen has been very faithful. Uh, He didn't start out with this momentous opportunity to share the gospel. How did he start out? He started out serving widows. A great need arose in the church. It it arose out of a feeling of neglect, It says in Acts chapter 6 that there were two groups of of Hebrew, there was a Hebrew and Greek-speaking widows that were upset with one another because they felt like they were being neglected in the distribution of the needs, you know, the things that were to support the needs in the church. And this was a very significant issue. And it was so significant, the apostles identified it as something we need help. We can't leave the study of God's word and prayer to take care of this. So we need to find these godly men and dispatch them to take care of the need. And one of the men that they found was Stephen. And Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit serving in the background. But I don't want you to think that this was some insignificant thing. Because first of all, there's no insignificant thing in the church, number one. But number two, grieving widows are a worthy cause to serve the Lord. <laughs> I mean, there's, it's no minimal thing. And, and grieving widows that are feeling neglected is a worthy group to serve in the church. And I think we might miss something if we don't realize that and value, even in our own fellowship, that there are many widows and widowers among us that we need to be praying for and caring for. And even in the early stages of the church, they see what a significant thing it was for Stephen to step into a hard situation. It was hard to get in the middle of division and and be used of God to help solve it, but he was faithful. And we learned that God measures success one way. We think of success in all sorts of ways the world has taught us, but God measures success one way, one word, faithfulness. And Stephen was faithful. And it was in his faithfulness that now he's brought before these, this religious court, you know, these religious leaders to answer for these false accusations. Before we jump into that, I want to turn back to Acts chapter 6 real quick. So hold your place in 1 Peter 5. 
Go back to Acts chapter six very quickly, just so you see it. I don't want you to miss this word as we go back and review how this all started. It says in verse one of Acts chapter six, in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Circle the word neglected. It literally means to fail to care for properly, or it also can mean to not pay proper attention. So, so whether this was real, 100%, whether it was, was perception, 100%, or it was a mixture of both, it was significant because this was, this was something that was floating in the early church, caused complaining, caused murmuring. And it's a quick reminder I have for us today about part of the spiritual warfare of being in a church, being a part of a church family, and specifically being in our church, especially if you're brand new. In a larger growing church, there is the spiritual attack of the enemy upon your mind of feeling neglected. Neglect is just an issue that comes up over and over again. Again, whether it's 100% true or 99% false, it, it doesn't matter. That feeling comes and the enemy capitalizes on it, attacking you in that area. The enemy will use this feeling specifically to try to isolate you or cause you to run. And many times it's running away. Listen, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 18, verse one. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. And so the isolation of nobody cares, nobody knows, you know, it's really a Western mindset. I mean, it's kind of a human mindset as well, but, but it comes from the feeling of I'm coming to a church family and all I want to know is what do you have for me? What do you have for me? And you're going to have to deal with that attitude, no matter whether it's a church or any other area of life. Because when you and I were born again, that attitude, that attitude got flipped around. And now when we walk into a place, when we walk into a situation, or we walk into a church, it's not what do you have for me. The attitude in the spirit is, what do I have for you? God has put me in your life to serve you. Not just Ed the pastor, but all of us as believers. And it's not, if, if you walk in with those types of expectations, then you're going to be disappointed quite a bit because it's not about what you have for me. It's what do I have for you? How is God going to use me to serve you? And so the enemy would love to isolate you with all sorts of feelings, real and imagined. And it's in that isolation that men and women begin to fizzle out and they become prey for the enemy. So let's look at the enemy's tactics here in 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is before we get into Acts 7. I want to remind you that this is the early church was dealing with this too. It's not necessarily a 21st century phenomenon, although we have our own issues and our own cultural pressures. But this neglect came into the early church very quickly because it's a tactic of the enemy that's well-worn and overused to some degree. Notice verse 8, 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, just circle that word adversary, and I want you right next to it, enemy. Someone who comes against you. 
Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we know Jesus said already the motive of the devil is that he comes, except, he doesn't come except to kill, steal, and to destroy. Here, Peter gives you another angle of it that he's like a lion walking around looking for someone to devour, looking for someone that is vulnerable. And when the enemy attaches his attacks to emotional situations or even real situations, the enemy can be very successful. And so there's always a battle. We're always engaged in the battle. It doesn't let up. There are different seasons of where things are easier or harder, but in times of struggle, times of anxiety, frustration, times of peace, times of blessing, you have an enemy, the devil. And he's walking around seeking even among us who he can devour. When you think of adversary, don't, even, don't just think of enemy, but also think of an attorney. An attorney. It reminds us of an attorney who's arguing and doing what he or she needs to do to win the case. The enemy's always accusing you. Think of not only an attorney, but also an accuser. The Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren, accusing us day and night of things that haven't happened and that aren't true. He's on the prowl looking to devour. And here you are wanting to grow and be used mightily of the Lord and the devil is coming against you. So what? Be sober, clear-headed, be watchful, or you can write next to that on guard, stay on guard. And then notice verse nine, resist him. The Bible doesn't say yell at the devil, scream at the devil, you know, rebuke the devil. The Bible says, resist him. Don't allow him any progress. Or as one of the picks of the month we had not too long ago, don't give an enemy a seat at your table. That table has been set by the Lord himself for you to enjoy with him. And he doesn't get a seat. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. And then remember, he says, that the sufferings you're going through, uh, your brotherhood around the world is going through it. And so there will be attacks. And there will be a constant, continual devil seeking to devour you, wanting to take you out. But we're reminded that Jesus Christ will give us the same testimony as Daniel had, protection from the enemy. And so Stephen now is in the midst and the claws of the devil, you could say, in the jaws of the lion. And yet he's taken the opportunity of all these accusations and all these difficulties, and he's turned it around for an opportunity to share the gospel by rehearsing the nation of Israel's history. And today we come to his conclusion, which isn't an easy conclusion, but Stephen has been faithful ministering to the widows. He's been faithful in this opportunity before the Sanhedrin, the religious rulers, and he turns things around and reminds them of Abraham's history, reminds them of Joseph and Moses. And now pick up with me in Acts 7. We left off in verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles 
whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor, verse 46, before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. Remember, one of the accusations was that Stephen blasphemed the temple. You got to understand something in the Jewish mind, especially in the first century, the temple was almost at idolatrous status. They valued the temple above everything else. And it was a very important structure. They found their value and their worth in this building. You know, what's interesting is if you go to Israel with us, we're going again in April, and you go with us in April, we're going to take you on one of the visits in Jerusalem to a little room known as the Temple Institute. And the, this group of Orthodox conservative Jews are ready as I speak to rebuild the temple. According, they, they don't believe they're fulfilling prophecy, but we know they're fulfilling prophecy and they're ready to build the temple. They've just flew over, if you're following the news, the, some red heifers that have been raised in Texas and they are ready even to start sacrifice somewhere on the temple mount without the temple. But one of the things you'll learn in the Temple, in the temple Institute is that these guys really believe that this building, when they rebuild it, not God, not Messiah, but this building will bring world peace. It's a fundamental internal belief that they have. Well, they didn't invent that feeling. The first century Jews, the Sanhedrin, they valued the temple over and above being right with God. They rejected Messiah, illegally crucified him, but they value the building. And it doesn't make sense. Idolatry never makes sense. And, and so he takes him back and he says, look, you guys had the tabernacle. It came in. I love this in verse 45. It says, Joshua came into the land possessed by the Gentiles, but God drove them out. So, so you see with Stephen, he talks about the fathers and then he talks about the faithfulness of God. Talks about the fathers, talks about the faithfulness of God. And we know that Moses was given the master blueprints for the tabernacle, but it wasn't about the tabernacle. And God allowed Solomon to build the temple, but it wasn't about the temple. It was about him all along. And then he says in verse 48, however, as important as these buildings are, however, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And what house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? As Stephen is teaching them, you know, he's bringing them to a conclusion. He's like, as important as the temple is, don't think that God dwells there. That's the only place where God is. And then he goes back and he quotes in Isaiah of the immensity of God. And he doesn't want them to miss it. I mean, even as we meet today, I think it's abundantly obvious that this building cannot be God's house. That God doesn't exclusively reside here. When you guys all leave, you know, God sleeps on the stage and takes a nap and he never leaves the building. But you know, as silly as that sounds, there are churches today Believers today that value buildings and property more than they do their own relationship with God. It becomes idolatrous. Now, you, you, should, you should understand how this room, how this building is. 
when it's empty. It's lifeless. It's cold. We turn the HVAC off so we don't have all the electricity running. It's cold. It's hollow. It's dark until people show up. And then it comes alive. I mean, even this room just a couple hours ago, the lights were off, it was cold, and it is lifeless because you're the church. And you just have to be careful whether it's this building, whether it's some possession that you have that doesn't rise to the level of idolatry. That's where they're at. He's very carefully crafting. And again, Stephen encourages me because he doesn't take out a Bible. He doesn't have notes. This is the Holy Spirit working in his life. And he has very, very hard things to say by giving them a history lesson of knowledge that they already have. And many times sharing the gospel with people, you're, you're doing the same thing. You're, you're using life circumstances and you're using connection points to share with people things they already know, trying to bring them to a place of surrender to God. Stephen's setting the pattern here. And there's a very specific pattern that he's setting, and that's this, to these religious rulers. I mean, you got to think of the intimidation that's going on here. These guys have his life in their hands. Very intimidating. It would be the equivalent of standing before our own Supreme Court today, and their decision will dictate your life. And you're going to make a strong argument against them, except that they have all the authority. Very, very difficult. But he's setting a pattern that throughout their history, their fathers have rejected God's anointed rescuer. Every time God sent a helper, they rejected it up into Jesus. Here's his conclusion. I want you to consider the difficulty of delivering this message. He says in verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You want to circle the word stiff-necked. We don't use that word very often, although you get the word picture. You're, on, you're inflexible, you're rigid, but here's the word that you might sound more familiar to you. You stubborn. He's speaking of their stubborn resistance. And the idea of uncircumcised in their heart speaks of a heart that's hardened and not dedicated toward God. There is no sign on their hearts that they are soft toward God. And says, this is your problem. Just like your fathers before you, you too are stubborn, stiff-necked. And notice he explains it to them in verse 51. He says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now, we've been given this insight from 1 Peter chapter 5. And now we have in Acts chapter 7, and it just lays before us. Here's your choice. Every situation in your life, everything you're facing right now, the things that are on your mind, here's your choice. You can resist the devil or you can resist the Holy Spirit. That's it. Those are your two choices. You can resist the work of the Holy Spirit. You can resist the, the softening, the work that God wants to do in softening your heart, helping you see it the way he sees it. You can resist God or you can resist the devil, but there's not a third option. And here you find that resisting God puts you and me in a very difficult place. We become stubborn, stiff-necked. We become uncircumcised in our heart and our ears. Not only are our feelings affected, but now we're not hearing the Lord anymore. We're stifling the work of the Holy Spirit. We are in a position where we are grieving the Holy Spirit holding back 
his faithful work. Jot it down in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse one. I'll just read it to you. It says, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. And you know, God has given every man, woman, and child a free will. While there's a lot of theological debates on that, just understand, you can make a choice. You can choose to resist God or choose to resist the devil. And how you make that choice has great significance for your life. Let me just say, you resist God at your own peril. You do it to your own damage, tearing down your own life. It reminded me of an old illustration about a captain. Captain of a ship that were looking into the dark night and saw the faint lights in the distance. And immediately he told a single signalman to send a message. And he sent this, alter your course 10 degrees south. And promptly a message came back that said, alter your course 10 degrees south. And the captain was angered. His command had been ignored. So he sent a second message, alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm the captain. And soon another message was received back, alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a seaman, third class Jones. Immediately the captain sent a third message knowing that fear that it would evoke in the person receiving it. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a battleship. And the return reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a lighthouse. And you know, if you don't want to alter your course, you're going to crash upon the rocks. And it's going to be very painful for you and everyone that's looking to you and following you and depending upon you. Alter your course, God says. It's almost like God, like the captain going, I don't think you understand. I'm God. Alter your course. You don't tell, God would say to us, again, from the silly illustration, God would say to us, you don't tell me what to do. I tell you what to do because I love you. I want what's best for you. And just trust me, you need to alter your course. It's important that you do that. And there, these are strong words. In verse 51, we can't minimize. Can you just feel how hard these words would be to deliver? Just to look at someone who, you know, you're just stubborn instead. I mean, not just someone, but, but people that had life and death hanging over your head. This is your problem. I mean, this is it. He's going for it. He says in verse 52, notice, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? I mean, that has been their testimony. Every prophet that was sent to the nation of Israel was rejected, was hurt, was harmed. I mean, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel. The reason why God sends prophets is because God's people aren't listening. And so he gives, which one did you kill? And they killed those, it says, verse 52, who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become betrayers and murderers. These prophets that were killed over the years told about the coming Messiah. And what did you do with him? You killed him. You murdered him. He says in verse 53, who have received the law by the direction of angels, but you guys don't even keep the law. Jesus said the same thing. He told the, he told the, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, you guys put these hard burdens on people that you yourself won't even carry. And now Stephen's following in his footsteps. Notice in verse 54, it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him 
with their teeth. Now, can you get the visual of that? These are grown men, probably older, leaders, you know, like, like real respected, you know, that people would stop and give them space when they're walking. They're all assembled in a semicircle around Stephen with all of the pomp and circumstance. And they're so angry that they're starting growling at him like animals. They're acting like animals in their flesh, not receiving the truth. Why? Why are they so angry? Because you notice not only are they gnashing their teeth, but it says that while they're gnashing their teeth, verse 55, Stephen's looking up. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, look, I see heavens open, the son of man standing. And so they're gnashing their teeth in verse 57. Now they're crying out with a loud voice. They're stopping their ears and they ran at him with one accord. So they're gnashing their teeth and they're like, I don't even know how it looks. If they did this, they did this, but they're out of control. They're completely out of control because they resist God. They're full of anger and wrath. Why? Why are they so mad? Well, I think it's a real practical answer, actually. I think it's practical. Their plan didn't work. They came up with a human plan, take care of Jesus, scatter, that will scatter his followers, and we can get back to our religious business. But that's not what happened. They killed Jesus, and the church was born. <laughs> and the church is at this time, the same time we read in Acts chapter 6, at this time, as the church was multiplying and growing, and they're seeing now their human efforts have led to the exact opposite. And even their accusations didn't silence Stephen. Even their lies didn't silence Stephen. Even their power and authority didn't silence the one that was looking up to heaven. This is the same group that condemns Jesus and they're enraged but while they're enraged, Stephen is engaged. You see him looking up. He is, has a, this fresh, verse 55, fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's able in the midst of his pain to see the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing. And this is, Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church. Because notice what happens. It says, in verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Again, circle the word stone. They murdered him. They viciously murdered him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? He knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Does that sound familiar? Sounds just like Jesus hanging on the cross in some of his final words. Jesus is standing here, but we learn earlier that at, after the ascension of Jesus, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Sitting down is a euphemism. It's used to describe the finished work of Jesus. When you sit down, you're done. It's over. As Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. But now we have another glimpse into glory and we find Jesus standing there. And I believe it's instructive for us because we find Jesus here receiving the first martyr 
of the church. Now, for some of you, the word martyr might be a new word. The word martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R, is a word to describe in the Bible those that lost their lives for the cause of Christ. Someone who specifically died because of their commitment to Christ, their martyr. And here Stephen is the very first one. And this section of the Bible is the hinge, this is the hinge of all salvation history. It's a, if not the, it is one of the, one of the biggest hinges in the Bible. It's, someone once said that big, large doors turn on very small hinges. This is a big door, even though it's not a significant hinge. It's a big door for a couple of reasons. Number one, this martyrdom is going to bring on a massive persecution upon the church. And the church is going to scatter all over the world, number one. But number two, I don't want you to skip this little verse here that we read over very quickly in verse 58. The witnesses, it says, laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Later on, we find out this man named Saul came from a city called Tarsus. And you may hear him referred to as Saul of Tarsus. In Acts chapter 9, we learn that Saul of Tarsus has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus. And what was he going to Damascus for? To kill the church. I believe he thought single-handedly he could destroy the church after seeing that it didn't work with Stephen, that the church is spreading, as you'll see in chapter 8. This is a big deal. This is the first mention of this young man named Saul. Many believe he was a part of the Sanhedrin. And here's the thing. He heard every single word that Stephen shared. He watched it all. He heard it. He felt it. He smelled it. He experienced it. And he stood there as people took stones to kill Stephen, he heard what Stephen said. He watched him. He saw the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit. It's all happening here, and it gets to him. I have to say, this should encourage every one of you that have been sharing the gospel with your family and friends all these years, and it feels like you've gotten no response, or things even got worse. You know, things got worse for Saul of Tarsus too. We're going to learn in chapter 9, you can read ahead all the way through if you like, but we're going to learn in chapter 9 that when Jesus meets him, he asks him a very important question. He says, why, Paul, are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting? And we'll get into that in depth when we get to that chapter, but Saul was fighting. He was fighting everything that he heard and everything that he saw. And I personally have the belief that this episode in Stephen changed him. Now, his initial response was anger too. Notice in chapter 9, Saul was an angry man. And in chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. I mean, before things got better for Saul, things got worse. And that's life sometimes. Sometimes before things get better, they get worse. There's more. The enemy presses in and things get harder and harder right before your breakthrough. Right before you press in to what's next and above, 
and experiencing the power and the presence of Jesus in a fresh new way. And I believe as Saul stood there listening to Stephen, I'm sure his heart began to beat harder and harder because he knew it was true. You got to understand, these men, part of their training was to memorize the Old Testament forward and backward in some cases. Saul was the kind of guy we learned that he was such a studious guy that his mentor Gamaliel couldn't keep him, couldn't get enough books for him. He couldn't learn enough. He was a very smart man. But here, the Holy Spirit was, mess, was, was getting right to the heart. And, and by the way, you know, when we use the word cut to the heart, in our English, it kind of has a positive connotation. You know, when you're cut to the heart, we, we kind of think of it, God really got to our heart. He brought conviction. But the Greek word here that's found when they were cut to the heart, it says in verse 54, just so you know, the Greek word here doesn't mean what our English word means. It actually speaks of anger. Their heart, they became angry. This is where their out, outbursts of wrath comes. Like they, they became angry in their hearts and that's what led them to murder. Jesus taught us the same thing, right? When he was teaching us about anger, don't, don't, uh, you know, don't put other people down. Don't call, you know, don't say raka because you're starting to murder people in your heart. You know, when you demean people, you call them idiots. When you use that kind of language, you're demeaning people in your heart. And that's where murder starts in the heart. Well, that's where Stephen's murder started in their heart. They were cut to the heart and fighting against the truth of God's word. And again, you will see in chapter eight, not only was Paul there and not only did he have everything at his feet, but notice chapter eight, verse one, Saul consented to his death. Something I personally believe he regretted. Do you know one of the theories commentators have when people study the Bible, one of the theories about the tent stake, the thorn in Paul's side, one of the theories that has been presented is Stephen, that he never got over it. And one day he just said, God, take it away. I can't live like this. I mean, there's a lot of theories. Stephen, people following him, persecuting him, uh, also some health issue. I, I come to believe, I think, I think it could be all of them that Saul just dealing with the reality of all the consequences of his past life. And he just kept dealing. He, and it was God's answer. It's like, you're just gonna have to learn how to deal with them, Paul, because, because you see it from the devil, but I'm using it for you. It's very powerful. Nothing is wasted by God. Now, as we close today, I just believe as I was putting my notes together, I didn't finish my study till about three o'clock yesterday. Uh, and so as I was praying over my notes, I was almost done. I felt like the Lord had a word for us in this chapter. And I wrote it down just like that. And here's the word. Here's, here's what I believe God is teaching us in life, in Stephen's life. And it's this. The victory you're looking for is yours by faith. The victory is ours by faith. I want you to see this. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sometimes we think victory is something we have to work for. You know, if I pray more and I study more and I serve God more and I give more money to the church and if I just do more, then some, I will get the victory. But I'm here to remind you today, according to God's word, victory is already yours by faith. It is a gift of God. Victory is only something that you receive from God and live in it and operate in it. And notice, this is what the Bible says. 
Maybe you've never seen it this way before and God is ready to give you a fresh understanding of the battle you're having with alcohol, the battle you're having with drugs, the battle you're having with anger, the battle you're having with frustration or feeling like everything is lost. Victory is already yours by faith. You don't need to work hard for it. It's yours. Notice verse 57. It's one of those hidden gems in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57. It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just circle that word, gives us. One of the gifts that you have by faith in Jesus is victory. In the New Living Translation, it says this, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The battle has already been fought and won, church. And so we need to go back to the cross We need to go back to the place of crucifixion, of the shed blood of Christ, back to the tomb where Jesus was buried, back to the tomb when the stone was rolled away and Jesus rose again from the dead. Victory is yours by faith. Every single time, in every single battle, we see every single enemy and foe fall because of Jesus and what he has done in your life. When those spikes were driven through his wrists, when his spikes went through his feet, when a crown of thorns was twisted into the head of our Savior, when a spear was thrust into his side, Jesus dealt a death blow to the devil. Sure, he walks around, roaming around, seeking whom he may devour, but the victory is yours by faith. You can walk by faith in victory. And so what do we say? We say, hallelujah, Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we celebrate our victory that you have given us today in Jesus. Father, thank you for the privilege of being reminded today through the life of Stephen. I know most of us are not going to be called to give our lives for the faith. We probably won't die for you, Lord, but you want us to live for you. And I wonder what is kicking against the goads, God, what is pressing up against us, what is challenging us today, but God, we offer it to you according to your word. We obey you as we cast our cares upon you because you care for us. We pray for a greater understanding of what it means to live our lives for you in the victory that you've given to us by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.